If you have your Bibles or your scripture journal, and I hope that you do, I want to open, I want to invite you to open with us to Luke and chapter 8. Luke and chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 22 through 25 this morning. Four verses packed with meaning for us. A story you're surely familiar with. Luke in chapter 8, verses 22 through 25, and also behind me on the screen in my translation as well. Uh, if you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. Luke in chapter 8, starting verse 22. God's Word says, One day, he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Amen. It's God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. It was a crime that seemed ripped out of a Hollywood script. On March 18, 1990, at about 1.30 a.m., two men dressed as Boston police officers were buzzed into the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. These men, who it turns out were not Boston police, proceeded to tie up the two hapless security guards and over the course of the next 81 minutes, stole 13 pieces of rare art. To this day, the case is unsolved. Let's go ahead and put that first picture up there. To this day, this case is unsolved. There are no real leads. All of the pieces retain in the, uh, remain in the wind as it were, and the frames that once housed some of the greatest paintings in history still remain vacant. Today, there's a reward of $10 million to anyone who has information that leads to an arrest, and the current valuation of what was stolen is half a billion dollars. Among the pieces stolen was the one I want to draw your attention to, this next one. This is Rembrandt's one and only seascape that he painted in 1633, and it's called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And I know it's kind of dark up there, so if you want a better picture, you can look on your phone at The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, and it'll pull it right up on Google. This depicts the scene, of course, that we're studying and considering this morning. There are many things worthy of note in this incredible painting. One can't help but notice that moving from left to right takes the viewer from agitation to calm. Rembrandt skillfully pulls us into the scene and vividly depicts what was truly a frightening event in the life of the disciples. One could almost feel the splash of the water and hear the cracking of the wood as waves crash against the boat and fill it. And consider the disciples. One group, likely the seasoned fishermen, are at the back of the boat. They're struggling in vain to control it. Above them is the mast shaped like a cross. Another disciple is watching the one's in the back, as they struggle, a few have their eyes on Jesus, pleading with him in terror, asking him if he cares that they are perishing. You'll see one at the bottom of the boat wearing red is vomiting over the side. Then you have Jesus, 
surrounded by light, still leaning on his cushion with the only calm expression of the bunch. Now with this painting, Rembrandt really conveys the scene well and communicates to us the frailty of humans. You can see the frailty of humans who are at the mercy of the elements that they can't control. And it is they who are shown as fearful and anxious, while Jesus, who has control over the elements, is as calm as can be. And I think there's something poetic about the fact that this painting was stolen and has yet to be found. The only copy in existence is literally and figuratively in the wind, as the expression goes. And if you begin to count the numbers of disciples in this boat, you'll notice there is an extra person in there. He's holding his hat with one hand and the rope with the other, and that person is looking directly at us. That's Rembrandt himself, in the wind. He's inviting us into the scene, urging us to become involved in the story, teaching us that when we find ourselves in stormy seas that we'll inevitably experience by virtue of just living life in a fallen world, that there's someone who's not freaking out at all. In fact, he's in complete control. And he's there in the storm too, and he's willing to do something about it if we would just patiently trust him. And even as Rembrandt put himself into the scene and invites us in as well, what he really wants to draw our main attention and focus to is the one with light around his head. At nearly the center of the painting. Because while we all come to this story and we ask, what storms am I facing? The more important question, both for Rembrandt and Luke, is who then is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. And in fact, the question that Luke is leading us to in chapter 9, verse 20, who do you say that I am, is not only the most important question in the gospel, but it's also the most important question you will ever answer. For Jesus' identity will affect how you live now and even into eternity. It is the most important question of your life. And it's the most important question of this text. Who is Jesus? Who is this that can remain unbothered by seemingly a life-threatening storm? Who is this that rebukes even the elements and they obey him instantaneously? Let's walk through this text and see. says Luke, one day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples. He said, let's go to the, across the other side of the lake. And so they set out. Well, as they're sailing, Jesus does what? He goes to sleep. And while he's sleeping, a storm came down and threatened the ship as it was tossed to and fro by the waves and water began to fill it, even still, Jesus sleeps. Now, abrupt storms like this are common on the Sea of Galilee. They come suddenly and without notice, especially at night. The Sea of Galilee sits 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by hills, so it sits in like this bowl, and what happens is the cool air comes rushing down the ravines and the hills, and around the lake, which collide with the warm water that's above the lake, and then there's a storm. So this happens all the time, but it seems that this one was especially threatening. The boat is filling with water, and the disciples believe that this might be the end for them. They are freaking out. They are panicking. And meanwhile, what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. There are many fascinating things about this scene. What's especially poignant is that in the four short verses, we both see Jesus' humanity and his deity on display. 
His humanity in that he sleeps and his divinity in his sovereignty over creation itself. All in these four verses. There should be comfort, I think, for us in here seeing Jesus sleeping. He's tired. As fully human, he got tired and he wanted to sleep. And he, he must have been tired to sleep in the middle of the storm, right? You, have you ever been tired like this? Have you ever been so tired that you could sleep basically anywhere? Does that happen to you? On the floor, on the couch, on a table. It didn't matter. I remember feeling like that when we, were, uh, when we went to Kuwait on our way to Iraq. We would train all day in the Kuwaiti desert in the hot sun. And we're so tired we could sleep in the dirt. Using our helmets as pillows. We're on a hard cot with our legs because I'm giant like a praying mantis with my legs over the side and, and hanging over. It didn't matter. We were tired. You've been like that, I bet, before? Tired like that before? Well, Jesus is not only so sovereign, he can literally rebuke a storm and it listens. He can also relate to your weakness in every way, yet without sin. Friend, Jesus has been tired like you. He's been hungry like you. He's been wounded by people close to him like you. He's felt the pain of life like you. And so he's someone you can go to at all times, and he knows what you're going through. Is there not great comfort in that? So he sleeps, but everyone else freaks out. And remember, who is included in Jesus' disciples? There are professional fishermen here among them. And fishermen who carried out their trade on this very sea. And this is how you know how severe the storm is. The professional fishermen are flipping out. Like imagine if you were on a boat tour of a body of water or on a cruise and a storm hit. What you'd probably do is you'd look at the professional crew and see how they were responding, right? If they're cool, calm, and collected, you probably feel better about the storm and its danger. But what if you look at the professionals and they're freaking out and they're throwing furniture off the side of the boat, you think that would affect how you would? <laughs> you'd probably follow suit and be anxious and, hey, you need help throwing this over the side, right? You'd, you'd conclude this storm is unlike anything they had ever seen before, and this is serious indeed. The disciples were frightened. They were certain that unless something was done, they would perish. Jesus, however, he's so unbothered that he sleeps. And that makes the disciples more concerned because they go to him and they wake him up and say in desperation, Master, Master, we are perishing. In Mark's account of this scene, they ask Jesus, do you even care that we're perishing? They want to know how Jesus is so unbothered by the danger they're in. How can he sleep at a time like this? And I think we could all relate to the disciples here in some sense, not that we've all been on a storm-tossed sea, that might, a boat that might break up, but in that we have had times when we have struggled and gone through trials, when we've wondered why something is happening to us or someone we love, and we wonder if God is going to do something on our behalf. Honestly, I mean, who could blame the disciples for their reaction? This is scary stuff, is it not? <laughs> but why are they scared and Jesus is not? Why could Jesus sleep through this? Well, the difference between the disciples and Jesus here is that the disciples only see their immediate circumstance. And they don't know who Jesus truly is yet. Jesus can sleep because he is resting in the care of God. Jesus has a trust that leads to rest, something that the disciples lack. 
This is why when Jesus rebukes the storm and it ceases, he asks, what? Where is your faith? Which is a rhetorical question that he's basically saying, you should be more trusting. Did they trust in God's goodness? Jesus did. That's why he could sleep. But disciples didn't. That's why they panicked. Do you guys see the difference here? For us to overcome trials in our life, we need to have a faith in God's goodness. He is no less good when we go through hard times than when he is when things are going well. And in such cases, you should actually do what the disciples did, which is go to him, right? Go to him and be honest about your fears, but don't do what the disciples did in that they doubted his care and goodness. We must have a faith that trusts in God, God's goodness when things are going well and when things are not going the way we wished they were. To do, what, to do that to be, would, to, would be, to be like the soil in verse 13, to doubt his goodness in the storms. Jesus is calling for a resting in his goodness no matter what the weather in your life is like. I think of hem writer Charles Wesley. He was returning to England after not so great time in Georgia. And he was on a ship and they, the ship encountered a violent, terrible storm which terrified Wesley. But when Wesley looked at the Moravians, the evangelical Christians on board, he saw that they were gathered together and they were praying and they were singing psalms and that night, Wesley wrote in his diary, alas, I have a fair weather Christianity. Are we not all prone to this? But Jesus is calling for a faith that trusts in God's goodness through the good times and the bad. To reject a fair weather Christianity. Because something else we need to see from this is that Jesus is with them, isn't he? He's on the boat in the same storm as they are. It's not like he is safely on the shore while the disciples are out in the storm. He is in the storm in the midst of them. And friend, did he not promise his presence with you at all times as well? Would he leave you when times are hard? And can such a Lord as this, a Lord who would be in the storm with you, be trusted to carry you through to the other side? One of the biggest factors in whether or not we use our trials for good is the question of what the object of our trust is. Too often, we waste trials because we are trusting in our own intellect to maneuver our way out of them, or we think, if I just had this, it would be okay. And so, we only see our circumstances, and we trust in ourselves to make it through, and we're in a hurry to get to the other side of the trial without having learned our lesson. What, Jesus, what is Jesus showing here, though? He's showing us that the one who sees beyond your immediate circumstances is the one who's in the storm with us. Is that not an incredible truth? When you see that the promise here that is in this text that transcends the scene is not that you and I will have no storms or that they will not go on too long. The promise is Jesus will be with you in it. And so when we go through trials, who is it that we're placing our trust in? Are we seeing only our circumstances or are our eyes fixed on the God who controls the storm and sees a bigger picture? And are we trusting in ourselves or in the goodness of God? Tim Keller illustrates it like this. He said, imagine you're falling off a cliff and sticking out of the cliff is a branch that's strong enough to hold you, but you don't know how strong it is. As you fall, you have just enough time to grab the branch. How much faith do you have that the branch will save you? Must you be totally sure that it can save you? 
No, of course not. You only have to have enough faith to grab the branch. That's because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's your, the object of your faith. It doesn't matter how you feel about the branch. All that matters is the branch. And Jesus, he says, is the branch. You see, Jesus doesn't ask the disciples, where is your faith? Because their faith isn't big enough. It's because it's not being placed in the right object. The size of their faith is not the issue. It's where it's located. But when times are hard, who do you trust? And when times are hard, do you see only your circumstances or do you see the one who can see beyond what's happening to how those particular trials will be used for your good and growth? What I like to picture when thinking about this is a tapestry. If you look at the back of a tapestry, what's it look like? It's a mess. It's a mess. There's yarn sticking out seemingly at random. Some have been cut close to the fabric. Some are frayed. And you step back and you look at it and you don't even know what the picture is. It all seems like chaos. But if you stepped around, what would you see? A beautifully intricate picture. And in trials and struggles of life, we can only see the back of the tapestry. We only see the circumstances and the waves and the creaking of the boat. But God can see the front of the tapestry and he knows where all the lines lead. Not only that, he's the one who made the tapestry and dictated every line. So why not place your trust in him and his goodness? You might not see the reason for why things happen, but that doesn't mean there isn't one. You know, Elizabeth Elliot said, God is God. And since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and service. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he's up to. Now, I want you to notice something else we may miss about the storm here that tells us about the storms of life. Look again at verse 22. One day, he got in the boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. So what's it say? Who led the disciples into the storm? Ah, Here's another key, right? Not only is Jesus present in the storm, he's the one who sends it. Truly, Jesus can sleep not only because he trusts in God's goodness, but because he knew the storm was coming all along. Do we think that the one who could tell a storm to be quiet and it listens immediately is somehow taken off guard by the same storm? But even as he knew the storm was coming, he still led the disciples to board the boat and head for Gersenes. An important truth we need to grasp in the midst of hardship is God's sovereignty. God is in control of every storm. Do you believe that, friend? In fact, he may have sent it. Is that something you think about when life is hard? See, we have a propensity, don't we, to blame Satan for anything that happens to us that we don't like, right? or we find unduly challenging. But I think this gives Satan a bit more credit than he deserves. Now, of course, he's the enemy. Of course, him and his flunkies are prowling like a lion to see who they may devour. Of course, spiritual warfare is real, and we have to engage in it. Of course, Satan will do anything he can to stop your progress in the gospel. But we also must not see Satan as God's equal, who could frustrate God's plans. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. He is an omniscient, he doesn't possess all knowledge. And he is an omnipotent, he is an all-powerful. 
The battle between God and the devil is not like that weird graphic that goes around social media every now and again where Jesus and Satan are in an arm wrestling match. This isn't a fair fight. God is creator. Satan is creature. Yes, Satan is dangerous and has power and authority, but only insofar as God allows it. Satan isn't in Jesus' league. They aren't equals. They don't match one another's power. Jesus is in control, and Satan is on a short leash. There's a reason that in Job, Satan had to keep coming back to God to ask for permission. (laughs) He can't do whatever he wants. God never ceased having control. So sometimes when storms happen in life, this is going to be hard to hear, it's because God has allowed it, and other times it's because he sent them. But either way, he's sovereign. That's a hard truth to settle in our hearts, isn't it? But the alternative would be worse. Think about it. Would it be better that God would be caught off guard by bad things happening? Would that be better? Would it be better if God saw something in your life and he's thinking, oh shoot, I did not see that coming. Would it be better if something happened that we didn't like and God was omnipotent, uh, impotent to stop it? Of course that wouldn't be better because if God is that limited, what could he really do for us in the midst of our struggles? If he couldn't even see them coming, how could he help when they arrive? And if he isn't good, how could we trust him through it? But if he's sovereign and good, then we can know that trials that come our way are for a purpose. And if, even if we can't see what they are. So it's important to realize that sometimes God sends storms into our lives. And if that's the case, that he must have a reason to do so. And while we may not see the purpose, that purpose on this side of eternity, we at the very least know they're for our good and for our growth, for us to trust in him more and to run to him with greater dependence. And even though he might not stop the storms when we want him to, we can know as always that he will be with us through them. We can rest assured that Jesus is aware of the trials and able to deliver us. But that deliverance might be through them rather than from them. Charles Spurgeon said this, In seasons of severe trial, Christians have nothing on earth in which to trust, and we're therefore compelled to cast ourselves on our God alone. When our vessel is tilting so far over, it is in danger of capsizing, and no human deliverance can avail. We must simply and entirely trust ourselves to the providence and care of God. Happy storm that wrecks us on a rock such as this. Oh, blessed hurricane that drives the soul to God and God alone. But now, as important as it is that we learn from the disciples' distress and lack of trust, the most important aspect of this text is the identity of the one who calms the storm with a word. And actually, did you notice that the disciples are more afraid of Jesus calming the storm than they are of having been in the storm? That frightens them more. Did you see that? Who is it that could do this? It's easy not to truly appreciate this incredible display of power that Jesus shows here with little effort and what it would have meant to those who were on the boat and witnessed it. How does Jesus make the sea stop its raging? What's he do? He just rebukes it. He, he, he rebukes it like he rebuked the demon to depart someone that they were tormenting. In fact, Luke uses the same word for rebuke here as he did when Jesus cast out a demon in chapter 4. 
With a word, the sea stopped raging and the wind stopped blowing. Jesus rebuked the storm like it was an unruly child and it obeyed like it was a compliant one. It did exactly as it was told with just a word. And we must not picture, see what I tend to picture is the sea going from raging, right? To kind of calm like this. Is that what you picture? That's not what's going on here. That's not what Jesus did. It went from raging, raging to being glass like this. Who could do that? Understand, in the ancient world, the sea was viewed as especially unruly and chaotic and dangerous. They thought the sea was uncontrollable by anyone but God. They saw the sea as this ungovernable power, and they often associated it with death. It was a place of unknown powers of evil and destruction. It was a place of fear and dread. Further, you know, the disciples, they know their Old Testament. They know that the only one who had authority over the sea and the created order was the one who created them. They knew that in Psalms, says in 65.7, who stills the roaring of the sea, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. They know Psalm 89.9, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. They know Psalm 104.3, he lays the beams of his chambers on the water. He makes the cloud his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. And they know the most important event in Israel's history, the Exodus, when the Israelites came up to the Red Sea and it parted to reveal dry land for them to walk on and receive their freedom, only to come back and vanquish their foes. And they know who did that, and it wasn't Moses. They know Jonah 1, when in language very similar to the scene, the seas raged and threatened to break up the ship until Jonah was tossed overboard and the sea went from raging to glass in an instant. They knew Psalm 107, 23 through 30, where the sea rages and tosses men to and fro until they cry out. And he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. The great waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. And they knew that the only one who could do that, the one whom all those verses referred to was Yahweh. Only Yahweh has that kind of command over the forces of nature. No one else has ever been pictured as having command of the sea. No one. Who is this then? That he commands even the winds and water and they obey him. Do you know anyone who could stop a sea from raging? Can you do it? Can I? Can, can the wealthiest people in the world go up to the sea and tell it to stop raging? Can the most politically powerful people do it? Can the most famous or most, talent, most talented people do it? Can someone gain this kind of power if they work hard enough or have enough money or possessions or earthly power to go up to the sea and tell it to stop its raging? Have you ever heard the story of King Canute? He was a Danish king in the 11th century. And the story goes that people, as people do with kings and those who are powerful, they would fawn over him and they'd flatter him excessively and he didn't like it. So he set his throne by the seashore and he walked up to the shoreline and he commanded the water to halt and not wet his feet and robes. Yet, can you guess what happened? Continuing to rise as usual, the tide dashed over his feet and legs without respect to his royal person. Then the king leapt backwards saying, let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings, for there is none worthy of the name but he whom heaven, earth, and sea obey. Only God can give instructions to the winds and the waves, and they obey. So when the disciples cry out to Jesus and say, we're going to die. Don't you care? 
And Jesus gets up and simply speaks a word, and the sea shuts up. They were frightened. Who is this that could exercise that kind of power? There's only one, right? Only Yahweh. And they knew that. As Tim Keller put it, Jesus was in effect through his actions saying, I'm not someone with power. I am power itself. Anyone and anything in the whole universe that has any power has it on loan from me. This scares the disciples more than the storm did. The disciples didn't go up to Jesus. Did you notice this? This is what you would probably do. The disciples didn't go up to Jesus after he calmed the storm and say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You saved us. Is that what they do? And then rejoice and have a celebration that they've been saved from certain death. Is that what they do? No, they fear. Why? Because they're beginning to understand what this means. Here's, he's no mere rabbi, no mere miracle worker, no mere prophet. This is God in flesh. He didn't just calm the storm. He is the storm. As N.T. Wright said, they're coming to the terrifying realization that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in their midst. They're frightened with a good fear in 25 because they're finally asking the right question. Could it be that the God who spoke everything, spoke and everything was created is here with us? That the God who appeared to Moses in holy fire and parted the Red Sea is in this very boat? That the God who asked Job if he was there when the earth's foundations were laid or he could measure the earth or enclose the sea or command the sun to rise had taken on flesh and was in their midst? That somehow the God that's described in Habakkuk 3 as one who has lightning flashing from his hands and makes mountains bow low, could make the sun stand still and nations tremble with a look, had come and made his home with them? They didn't have a category for that. They knew the promised Messiah would come, but they didn't know he would be God in flesh. The most important thing we need to see from this text is to be reminded who it is we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. Who is it that we should be thinking about when we think about Jesus? That we answer correctly the question, who then is this? We cannot, as so many moderns want to do, simply think of Jesus as an ancient teacher who had some really neat things to say and some really important lessons we need to learn about love and acceptance. And if you want him, that's fine. If you don't, no worries. Well, let's not relegate him to the fringes with all the other religious teachers from history. We can't just see him as the one, one of many ways to heaven that we can receive and Take or leave him as authority in our lives. We can't look at him as a means to an end, to get a mansion in the sky or a sweet life here that he's just cheerleading us about, but doesn't really care if we submit to him or love him or serve him or make him the center of our life. He will not allow for any of those things because he is more than we can imagine. And if you understand who he really is, you won't relate to him in those wrong ways. Here, be astonished. Here, we have nothing less than the creator, God, who has taken on flesh. We have in Jesus, the God who spoke the universe into existence, who has come to dwell with man. The God who controls every last molecule in the universe is standing in this boat in Luke 8. I want you to think about our universe for a moment. You know, our sun is 93 million miles from earth. 
If we scaled the earth down to a size of a grapefruit, the moon would be a ping pong ball 12 feet away and the sun would be a ball of fire as big as a four-story building a mile away. And Pluto would be like a marble 37 miles away if we shrunk the universe down. If we wanted to travel to the sun and we went in a plane going 500 miles an hour, it would take 21 years to get there. If we went to Pluto, we'd be in the air for more than 900 years. If we flew on the same plane to the nearest star and planetary system to us, Alpha Centauri, it would take 6 million years. By comparison, the nearest galaxy to the Milky Way, the Andromeda, is 2.5 million light years away, or 15 quintillion miles. That's a 15 with 18 zeros. Our trip to Andromeda in that plane going 500 miles an hour would take 4.2 trillion years. As of a few years ago, the furthest galaxy that the Hubble telescope had been able to detect was 13 billion light years from Earth. That's 78 sextillion miles, which is a 78 with 21 zeros. It would take us 20 quadrillion years to get there flying in a 500 mile per hour plane. And this, is, this space isn't empty, right? It's full of stars. Our galaxy has 150 to 200 billion of them. And the Milky Way is just one of over 200 billion galaxies. There are more stars in the galaxies of the universe than grains of sand on the seashore. There are still less, though, as many stars as there are, than there are H2O molecules in 10 drops of water. And the one who created all of that set it all in motion, rules over every speck and atom of it, tells it what to do, holds it together by a word of his power, is the same one standing in this boat. Does that not stagger you? And so if Jesus is the self-same God that holds all things together, that even the winds and waves obey him, shouldn't we? What did the parable of the sower show us last week? That those who are rooted in the word about Christ are those who are characterized by hearing and doing the word. Those who have truly received the seed of the gospel and have had it take root in their hearts will hold fast to the word and bear fruit. Those in Jesus' true family are those who hear the word of God and do it. Here in verse 24, we see that even creation hears and obeys its creator. Will we? I think it's both ironic and tragic that every single thing in all of creation, everyone, hears Jesus speak and obeys until you get to man. Only man disobeys. Man is the only thing that of all creation who has the nerve to hear Jesus' commands and say no. David Platt put it like this, we spurn our creator's authority over us. God beckons storms, clouds, and they come. He tells the wind to blow and the rain to fall, and they obey immediately. He speaks to mountains, you go there. And he says to the seas, you stop there, and they do it. Everything in all creation responds in obedience to the creator until you get to you and me. We have the audacity to look God in the face and say, no. Here we see Jesus command even the wind and waves and they hear and obey. Why don't people hear and obey? You know, you, you'll frequently hear me say that our motivation for obedience is the gospel and grace, right? That knowing the truth about the gospel and them sinking into our bones will lead to a response of obeying Christ. That's the right and fitting response to the gospel and that is true and good and right, and Scripture attests it. But can I suggest another motivation for obedience? How about we obey Jesus because He's the Lord of all things? 
and we're the lords of nothing. How about we obey his commands because he's in a position to command? How about we do what he says because he's sovereign and beautiful and good? Now, all of you have had a job when you ha- you've had a boss, right? You've had a supervisor, someone over you, in charge of you, who supervised you. What was your motivation to do what they said? And we could say, well, because they're a good boss, or they were a good leader, or they were respectable, or they were nice. But brass tacks, the reason you listen to your boss was why? Because they were your boss. They were in charge. They possessed authority. Jesus has all the authority that there is to possess. And since he has authority, he can command. And so we need to obey. We need to bend knee and say, command me my king. But it would be one thing if he was ruler over all things and he kept his distance. But it's quite another to know that the God of all things entered the storm to make a way for us to be with him. He came to dwell with us so that we can know and love him too. And it had a cost. Now, I mentioned a bit ago that disciples would likely remember Jonah 1 when they heard and saw Jesus calm the storm. And we're meant to see similarities between Jesus and Jonah. Did you notice them? In fact, the events of Jonah 1 and Luke 8, 22 through 25 are eerily similar. Jesus and Jonah got into a boat. There's a storm that threatens both their boats. Professional sailors panic. Both go to sleep in the midst of the storms. Both get woken up by the fearful passengers. The sea is calmed in both. And in both stories, the people on the boat respond with fear. But the stories diverge because Jesus is better. Jonah is, do you remember why he was on the boat? He's fleeing from the will of God. Jesus was on the boat as he continued to pursue the will of God. Jonah's presence on the boat was reason for the storm. Jesus is the one who stops the storm. Jonah was on the boat in order to avoid going to the Gentiles in Nineveh. Jesus was on the boat so he could get to Gersenes, which is a Gentile territory. Jonah had to be delivered from death as he sunk into the ocean, and Jesus was the one who delivered everyone else from death. But further, Jonah is the one whose idea it was to be cast off of the sea, wasn't it? But it wasn't because Jonah was bravely sacrificing himself for the sailors. Rather, he just wanted to die. And that's how much he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He was selfish. And when he started to have regrets, as he nearly died in the water, it was only then that he cried out to God for rescue. Jesus wasn't thrown off the boat here, was he? He calmed the storm with a word. But in another sense, he did willingly enter into the storm. The ultimate storm of death in the place of wayward humanity. You guys want to see more irony? Check this out. When Jesus was about to enter into the storm of arrest and beatings and gruesome cross, he asked his disciples to stay up with him. And they went to sleep. In this, storm, in this storm, they asked Jesus cared because if he did, he wouldn't be sleeping. But in Gethsemane, they weren't even willing to stay up with him at his hour of death. But he went to his death for them anyway. So you see, this scene is much more than a story about a time Jesus did the miraculous. It is communicating profound spiritual truths to us. Jesus doesn't just rebuke a body of water. He rebukes the very thing that is a metaphor for death and chaos. He rebukes it because he will save the disciples physically here, but he also intends to save them from spiritual death and restore order in their universe, but by the very means of his own death and resurrection. Jonah seeking down in the depths and being brought back to life is a shadow of what Jesus would do through his substitutionary death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. He even says in Matthew 12, he says, 
For just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the storm Jesus entered, the depths of the sea that he experienced was the worst that anyone has ever faced. The cup of wrath he drank, the forsakenness he experienced, no one has ever come close to that kind of pain. The dying in place of the guilty, even though you are innocent, and he entered the storm willingly. Creator God entered into that pain, entered the depths of the sea, not selfishly like Jonah, but in the greatest act of humility and selflessness the world has ever seen. And that teaches us something else about our own pain and struggle, doesn't it? When life is so painful and confusing that we can't fathom anything good coming out of it, we need to look no further than the cross. If our pain can't result in anything good, explain the crucifixion. The worst imaginable pain, but it resulted in the storm of death being conquered and countless people being saved from perishing into a Christless eternity. Who then is this that commands even winds and water and they obey him? As N.T. Wright says, we will only give the right answer to the question of who Jesus is when we realize that to give it commits us to total trust and obedience. And shouldn't it? Who then is this? It's the creator God who holds all things in his hand. It's the one who will die in place of wayward and rebellious sinners. It's the one who conquers death and frees captives. The one who has been to the depths of the sea and the farthest galaxies and the cross. Yahweh is his name. Jesus is his name. Savior is his name. King is his name. Creator and sustainer and sacrifice. The storm and the very present help for all those who are in the midst of the storm. Do you know him? Who then is this? How you answer that will affect how you live every day and into eternity. See who this Jesus truly is be ruined and amazed and never cease living for such a simultaneously powerful God and a near friend.